Tonight I want to talk about the humble topic of the nature of ignorance. Hopefully we'll clear it up in half an hour. Um, I said the last time I talked uh, that the Dalai Lama had said that all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception and that that's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. So what brings about this mistaken perception? And what exactly are we even talking about when we talk about perception and mistaken perception? Stephen spoke the other night of papancha, that quality where the process where a simple experience like a sound becomes so quickly hidden in all the proliferation that follows it with the agile activities of our mind. So we end up relating to something that isn't happening at all. And that's one way that misperception takes place. So for example, in our complex psychology, sitting here, somebody makes a sound. Even simpler than that, there's just the hearing of a sound. And the papancha immediately starts. It's unpleasant. We associate it with lack of respect. Reminds us of how in our childhood we were treated as not being worthwhile. Up to all the times that we are now treated as not being worthwhile. The immensity of the pain that comes with that. The anger. You see what I mean? By this time, the next time that sound arises, it's almost impossible to relate to a sound We're relating to a whole conglomerate of things that isn't happening except for in the thinking process. So this is one way of misperception. And it's fueled, as we've spoken of so often, this is fueled by what we call the kalesas, greed, hatred, ignorance, delusion sometimes translated as afflictions of the mind or torments of the mind or defilements, which word I don't really like, so I'll prefer to use afflictions. Now this misperception can happen on an even more basic level and this fascinates me, actually. And that is Let me define perception first. By perception is that quality of mind. It's present in every mind moment. It's one of the five aggregates. So with consciousness, feelings, volition, perception, and rupa, material, matter, it's going to be part of our experience in every mind moment. And so perception means simply the quality of recognition or discernment of something. So when the kalesas are present, when they're afflicting the mind, often even this very basic first perception is distorted. And that leads to all kinds of confusion, all kinds of reactions based on having perceived something that isn't actually true in the first place. So, for example, when that sound comes again, 
the perception could be so distorted you couldn't even recognize it as a sound, as somebody coughing. It might take a whole different discernment in the mind. It might be discerned in a whole different way. Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you look at a pencil, you perceive it, meaning you recognize it, you discern it. But the pencil itself may be different from the pencil in your mind. And so this is the root of our problem. These afflictions that bring about this basic mistake in the way that we perceive our experience, which I'll go into this more in detail. And so I feel that to understand the nature of these afflictions, of these delusions, is really the key to our practice. So these afflictions, greed, hatred, and the root one of all of them, of course, ignorance, these are the tormenting aspects of consciousness that our whole practice, the practice of morality, of concentration, development of wisdom, these are working together to clarify these aspects of mind, to purify the mind from these tormenting delusions. And purifying means seeing through them, no longer being in bondage to these afflictions, and eventually uprooting them altogether. It doesn't mean hating them or hating ourselves because they arise in the mind. I used to have a huge resistance to hearing the Kalesas talked about and one hears them talked about a lot. It's really one of the key points of the Buddha's teaching. But I would hear about kalesas, I hear them translated as defilements, and I didn't even want to think about it, much less hear talk about it. Even the word defilement, I'd come away thinking, oh, I'm so defiled, it's so disgusting. And Buddhism sounds so negative when you look at it from this aspect. And the more I would start be looking in practice, of course, the more I would see greed, hatred, and delusion arising. And the, the more negative turn of mind it could come to have so that I would come away from a talk about it feeling like it was just being hammered into me, the nature of my disgusting tendencies of mind. And one comes to wonder sometimes, is this, in Buddhism, is this what we're saying our intrinsic nature is? This continual arising over and over of greed, hatred, and delusion. Obviously not, or we wouldn't be here. But it made me not want to look. And over the years, I've actually come to flip about it completely, that far from being negative, I find the the teaching about working with afflictions and seeing them is incredibly positive. It offers us the possibility to understand and move out of the suffering that we're in. And the reason that it was so negative for me is, it's back to delusion again, of course, is that rather than hearing about these as something to learn about, to observe, 
to come to be familiar with and thus see through, as identifying with them. So that when greed would arise, very often it would be my greed, I'm a greedy person, I'm disgusting. And that's really different. The more we come to look, the more we see that it's actually, it's not our intrinsic nature. That they only hide the clarity, the light, the peace that's available, that's in the mind. But we're so used to having these afflictions be the way that we move and react to situations. They're so pervasive. They arise so frequently that we come to think that's who we are and how we normally relate to situations. It's really easy to identify with them, and sometimes it can seem overwhelming. It can seem really discouraging, because the more we look, the more we see this, the more it reinforces our idea that we're really hopeless in the first place whenever we identify with them. But we need to know what we're dealing with. We need to investigate and understand the nature of these forces in the mind. Learn to recognize when they're present and when they're not present. And from this comes the power to be able to see through them, to not be in bondage to them. The mind begins to purify. And this is what we're doing with our mindfulness practice. Again, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, to understand something, we need to have a direct encounter. And if we're resistant to or afraid to look at these qualities in our mind, we never can have a direct encounter with them. We'll keep on being led by them, being lost in them. So, for example... When ignorance is present, when delusion is present in the mind, you're having a sitting where your mind is dull and heavy and vague. And you know you're trying. You're really trying to note things. You're trying to come back to the breath. And it's just all this fuzzy, amorphous heaviness. Now, it's probably rare to note, oh, there's delusion present in the mind. Much more common to think, I am really incapable of doing this practice. I blew it. I did something wrong. It was the apple I ate. It was the extra hour of sleep. It was that moment of greed three and a half hours ago. This is it. I blew it. Or to project it outward onto this whole thing as a waste of time. But when we can say, oh, right, at this moment, I'm heavy, there's cloudiness, there's dullness, confusion, delusion is present in the mind. It's very powerful. And from moments of doing this, we begin to see that ignorance is not some monolithic, unchanging, ever-present experience driving our lives. It arises and passes moment to moment due to conditions, just like anything else. And I find this a very positive understanding It's a very helpful thing for me to see. Oh, yes, it's not hopeless. It's impermanent. 
And so in this way, meditation is a very healing process. Healing the mind of the afflictions, purifying the mind. It often, the body comes to healing as well. But in order to heal, we must look at the nature of the disease. We can't hide from it. We can't pretend it's not present and wish it would go away. So what are, I just want to list a few general characteristics of the affliction, ways we can possibly help us to recognize when they're present in the mind. The first is that when there's affliction, when there's ignorance or greed or hatred, it introduces a distortion, as I said before, a misperception. In other words, it's called an affliction to the extent that we see things not the way that they are. We see them in one way, and they really are another way, and we just don't know this. So we end up with this distorted sense of reality. Our perception is out of sync with what's really going on. It doesn't correspond to what's going on. And then we build from this and just get further and further away from what's happening wonder why we're confused. This root of this, this root misperception of ignorance stems from our fundamental misperception of ourselves, of who we are. This is really the root wrong seeing, wrong view that gives rise to all the other confusion. Nisargadatta Maharaj says, The obstacles to clear perception of one's true being are desire for pleasure and fear of pain. The very freedom from this is the natural state. Now, the desire for pleasure and the fear of pain, here you have basic greed and hatred, stem again from the basic distortion in our perception of ourselves, from seeing ourselves as some permanent, unchanging entity, autonomous, separate from each other, separate from nature. And once this mistaken way of looking things has entered into our perception, kind of gelled into how we think we're seeing things, all of our emotional responses our reactions to situations, the constructions and formulations that get built in our mind, they're all built upon this initial mistaken way of seeing things. So the further we go with our constructions, the further we get away from what's really going on, from what we really are, and we end up feeling confused, alienated, wondering why we feel separate, and not quite connected with our experience. We don't quite see, even though we might know it in our mind on a thinking level, this sense of perception is taking place moment to moment on a very basic, immediate level, not through the process of thought so much. And so we expect things to be one way, even though in our mind we know they're not. We expect them to be permanent. We keep thinking we're going to find something solid 
out there or in here to give us satisfaction. We think we're some unchanging, abiding self that can be satisfied. And because that's what we think we perceive, our experience is never going to quite work. It's never going to quite jive. Because we're in conflict with reality. It's like a simple example. If we look up at the sky and see some beautiful star, and astronomers can tell us that actually that star died 10 million years ago, and we're just looking at light. It's not there anymore. Or even watching a sunset, and they can tell us that just as it's going down behind the hill, actually that happened eight minutes ago, and we're just seeing the light because it takes eight minutes to get from the sun to here. We're not quite perceiving things exactly as they are. We're not living in the world we think we're living in. The pencil you perceive may be different from the pencil in your mind. And so the second quality, this misperception introduces a quality of disturbance, obviously, because we're in the sense of conflict with what's going on. It's like a friend of mine gave this example of our life is continually spent as if we're trying to pound a square peg into a round hole. And our mind is the square peg and reality is the round hole. And we just spend our life pounding and pounding and pounding and wonder why it doesn't work. And never really stop to investigate, these two don't match. And so we keep on having expectations based on something that isn't true. Those expectations aren't met. We don't quite understand what's wrong. And we end up with this pervasive sense of disturbance. It really can be quite deep. Not just when there's something obviously that's creating a lot of suffering, but just in little day-to-day routine things. Uh, Underlying tone of uneasiness. Something doesn't quite jibe. And it's easy to internalize that as there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with life, there's something wrong with, you name it, whatever one happens to be doing at the time. An example, just a simple everyday event and how this not quite seeing things the way they are leads to a sense of being out of touch. This is all too common, unfortunately. It was a couple of years ago, um, some of us, some of the staff and teachers here belong to um, a health club where we can go swimming and exercise and stuff. And so a couple of years ago, a friend and I, in the middle of the three-month course, and it was a, a long, hard day. We were really tired and in a rather negative frame of mind. And he said, let's go swimming and we'll really feel good. That'll really help. So we looked forward to it all day, got ready, went swimming, got there. Now, the way I'm describing it, I was not observing it with this clarity. This is more in retrospect. Got there, it's chilly down there. They don't keep it real warm and I'm real sensitive to cold. So I was getting on my swimsuit and freezing. And I can't wait to go get in the water. This is really unpleasant. Went and jumped in the water, which was even colder. And just, oh, God, you know, I just started swimming really fast to to warm up. Warmed up after a couple laps, and then I just 
moving through the laps, moving through the laps. This is really boring. If I hurry up, I can get into the sauna. And so I did my laps, just kind of dragging through it. Phew, phew, that's done now. I can go get in the sauna. Went into the sauna, which was, this is really nice, for about three minutes. And then the board that I was lying on started to get hard. Then I started to sweat. Then I started to get really hot and dizzy. Oh, i got to get out of here. This is really unpleasant. Went out, it was really cold, which was unpleasant. And stayed out until I'd cooled off. Well, let me jump back in the sauna, which was nice for one and a half minutes this time. And I could stand it for maybe five minutes. Got out, took a shower, went up, met my friend. Who's, um, the, he was a man, so he was in the other locker room. And we both went, wow, that was really great. <laughs> And then we started talking about it. (laughs) Had I not gone back and looked at it, I would have come away with the perception that that was really great. So how come I really, deep down, don't feel really great from this experience? And that's, as I said, all too common. We're just out of sync, not looking at what's going on. I thought there was some permanent me that was going to be made happy and fulfilled that there was some experience out there that was going to do it. And that being happy was about having all pleasant things around me to begin with. So when we don't question our perceptions, we're going to get this underlying sense of dissatisfaction and wonder why. The third quality of these afflictions is that they are so habitual. It's like they're incredibly addictive qualities of mind. We're so used to seeing in this way. We're so used to the base one of seeing ourselves as abiding, as permanent, as separate, autonomous. We're so used to acting out of desire and aversion on very subtle levels that it's very hard to break out of it. It's it's hard to even see that it's happening. It becomes our habitual mode of response when we're not working with mindfulness. When we are working with mindfulness, that's the power, that's the tool that enables us to break out of this habitual nature. But I, f- I feel, for myself, I found it very important to respect the power of this conditioning. And by conditioning habit, I'm really using them kind of the same. Meaning a habit or conditioning that the more a particular mode of responding or state of mind is maintained or sustained in our experience, it's just that much easier, that much more likely for that particular mode, way of responding, to arise again. Now, of course, this also works for positive qualities like cultivating a sense of metta, cultivating equanimity. It's also easier for those to arise, cultivating mindfulness. That's why every moment of of mindfulness, the continuity, has a power because it's making it that much easier for mindfulness to arise in the next moment. And when we're not cultivating mindfulness, as most of our lives we haven't been, without knowing it, we've been cultivating the afflictions. The Buddha wouldn't 
um, at least from what I've read, ever talk very much about the beginnings of things. It used to drive me crazy, you know, how did we all get in this predicament? Why, if the, our intrinsic nature is so light and peaceful, are we tormented by these qualities of mind? Why are we so easily prey to these afflictions? Uh, he never would <laughs> give an answer. He would say things like, um, the mind has been afflicted since beginningless time. And he would say, also, what I'm teaching you is all you need to know to come out of suffering. I'm teaching suffering and the end of suffering. And so if you take what he says and put it into practice, we can come to the end of suffering. He was basically saying it's no use trying to figure out the beginnings of things. In fact, he said there were four things that would drive a person mad to think of them. And I can't think of all four, so don't ask. But one of them was the beginnings of things. It hasn't stopped me thinking about it, but... Anyway, this, that the mind has been afflicted since the beginningless time, you can take it, I do anyway, as a symbol, really, of the depth and power of these habits of mind. And not, again, in a negative or pessimistic way, but in a way that we need to respect it, so that we understand in the moments that we've really seen clearly, and we really are free in that moment from delusion or greed or hatred, But then it comes back again so strongly later on, not to be discouraged, but it's just been so habitual, so pervasive for so long that it's not going to just go away like that. That's why it's so important to learn to recognize these qualities so we can understand them, these deeply ingrained habits. Because when we don't see them, we're assenting to this view of reality without even knowing it. And the whole society assents to this mistaken view of reality. It becomes the agreed upon assumption. You know, A couple of examples from uh, just reading the newspaper the other day, a most instructive way to find out some of the assumptions that we're all living with. One was um, an article talking about an advertisement on TV where some real attractive woman came on up close. I don't remember what she was advertising, but she said, um, I've had it with reality. I want illusion. (laughs) And this is to sell something, so it's meant to appeal to us. The second one isn't funny. It's quite upsetting. There's a headline we saw in the Globe, headline talking about a proposal to Congress to ease the assassination ban. And this was a serious headline, like easing the milk tax or something. Ease the ban on assassinations, mostly talking about foreign governments. And so that is a way that there is this warped view of reality, of what's real, of what's wholesome and what isn't that it's okay to assassinate in the name of peace, you know. And when we don't take the time or the energy or the care to investigate our perceptions and our assumptions, we're all assenting to this. It's so close that we can't even see it's there, but it's affecting us. 
we're so used to seeing things in this way that even when we begin to look, it's very difficult not to perceive things through these afflictions. Like someone told me about a movie, I didn't see it, uh, some science fiction movie where some creatures kind of glommed on to people's faces and you could see through it. But So people would see through as if it didn't know it was there. But it's like right on you and kind of infiltrating and taking, taking over. And it's kind of like that. It's not our nature. It's not necessarily part of us. But we're so used to it, you know, just sitting there that we think that's what the world looks like. Sometimes it seems like one of the most difficult things on the path we're on is learning how to step out of seeing in this mistaken way. It's hard for just what I said. It's first hard just to even discern that we are seeing in a mistaken way. And another reason is that as we begin to move from a different understanding, from a different perception, it meets with great resistance, both internally and externally. Internally, just a simple example, if say you're caught in some difficult process, emotional state, memory, whole conglomeration of things, whatever, but very painful and difficult and a lot of suffering and you're really bringing mindfulness to it and suddenly there's just a moment where You see so clearly, oh, it's thoughts and emotions and there's sensations and a real sense of there's nothing solid here. And in that moment, there's not a problem. And it's a moment of perceiving, say, impermanence, impermanence of the mind-body process in that one moment on a really deep level, really perceiving things the way it is rather than this solid sense of me and this concept and the suffering. And in that moment, there's no problem. But so often, not always, but often, the next reaction is it's tremendously threatening. And often the mind will just skitter off and back into the problem, even though it's much more suffering, as oh, much more back to the old way of seeing things. It feels safer. It feels solid. It feels like there's something here. And often it seems as though the tendency to misperceive is so strong, we've gotten so comfortable with it, that it's almost as if there's a preference to see things that way than to move out of it into, yeah, right, there's nothing here but changing sensations and thoughts and feelings. Even though the accurate perception is much more freeing. So internally, it's scary. It's often threatening. It's changing one's whole view of the world. And I've often found externally, when you start to begin to change our habitual ways of responding to situations, or our habitual modes of behavior, say, often you find that the people who are your friends are uncomfortable with the new ways that you're acting, the new ways that you're behaving. Just when I, when I first got into practice, say, and just not out of a sense of moralism, but just for some reason I I didn't want to drink anymore. And so I just stopped. And I never said anything about it. I didn't have a sense of it was bad. It was just seeing that it wasn't helpful. And this was very threatening. And I actually ended up going in a different way from my friends. 
and, and this is different from kind of like a moral railing at someone that makes them feel like you're on their case, but it's just you're beginning to see through the societal assumed perceptions. And just as it's scary internally when we sit here, it's scary to other people externally sometimes. And so we often don't get a lot of support for it if we're not with Sangha or other people who are working in a similar way. And this again is hard and it makes it in a way tempting or easier just it's easier to fall back into the old ways of seeing because they're so deeply ingrained anyway. So that's the habitual, the pervasive nature of these afflictions of mind, that they arise so strongly and so frequently. But the fourth quality, and this is really the important one to remember, is that they are not our intrinsic nature. They only obscure it, like clouds obscuring the sun. This is from Kalu Rinpoche. When you practice the Dharma, the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. And so that's what it's like. The clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and joy will be shining in the clear light of your mind. It's just that sometimes we take the clouds to be all there is. We take them to be unchanging. In each moment of our experience, there are certain qualities, these five aggregates, that are intrinsic to the nature of our existence in that moment, to the structure of consciousness. So feeling, perception, consciousness, volition, Rupa, matter. Those are there. You're not going to have a moment that we're a human being that one of those isn't happening. But these afflictions, greed, hatred, ignorance, these are not intrinsic. They do not have to be there in every moment of our existence. And it's very important to know this, that they can disappear. They can drift away like the clouds. We can transcend and overcome them. Otherwise, practice doesn't make any sense. And so when you're discouraged, it can be helpful to reflect on this and also to realize that often it's discouraging because we're beginning to see these more. Before these afflictions were so comfortable that we don't even know they were here. When we begin to pay attention to work with mindfulness, we see them more and more. This is really the beginning of the healing process. But it's also a very painful part of the healing process. Like sometimes taking a very painful medicine. I have a friend who was in chemotherapy for a while. And she would say she knew it was good for her, but it made her so sick she'd just sit and look at the pill for like a half an hour or an hour before she could get herself to take it because she knew she was going to be in the bathroom sick for the whole night. So sometimes it almost feels that bad. 
turning around and looking at these things in our mind. But it's the only way to come to understand and be free of them. So that's the path of our practice, to learn to tell the difference between these obscuring, obstructive qualities of mind and the real pure nature of our mind and heart. I want to talk a little bit specifically about the quality of ignorance, the affliction of ignorance, because that really is the root one, the root misperception. And first, just to begin to get a feel for it, you know, let's get familiar with what it feels like when our mind is filled with ignorance. It's dark, heavy, confused, foggy, sluggish. I have this description, I really like it, from um, Jana Panika, of a mind that's strongly under the influence of delusion. There's a general heaviness and unwieldiness of the mental processes. Force of habit predominates. Changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest degree possible. Thought is rigid, inclined to dogma. It takes long to learn from experience or advice. Affections and aversions are fixed and biased. In general, the character proves more or less inaccessible. I love that. So if you ever have a moment, a rare moment, that you recognize any of those qualities, instead of saying, oh, I'm a rigid, fixed, biased person, you could say, oh, ignorance is present in this mind moment. (laughs) Just see if that makes a difference in the relationship to it. Also, learning to recognize when it's present, learning to recognize when it's absent. The mind is facile, it's flexible, you can really see what's happening clearly, you can note it clearly, it comes and it goes. Helpful not to say, wow, I'm such a good yogi. But there's not delusion in the mind now. There are other positive qualities. There's mindfulness, there's concentration, there's energy. So that's one aspect of ignorance. The other is this wrong view, this distortion. Because of the fogginess, because of the darkness and the cloudiness, we see wrongly. The classic example given is of someone walking in the woods at twilight, and it's not completely dark. You can make out the trees, you can make out kind of bigger shapes, you can sort of see the path, but you can't see little things very clearly. You can't quite tell what's going on over there in the shadows. And you see a vine or a rope hanging from a tree, and the mind mistakes it for a snake because of the obscuring quality present in that moment. And in that moment of mistaking the vine for a snake, 
That mistaken recognition leads to strong reaction of mind, of fear. I know there's poisonous snakes in this area. Kind of whirl around and see other vines, and they're all snakes, and there's a sense of panic. The whole way we perceive the woods changes based on this initial mistaken perception. It's dangerous. One is scared. The woods are unfriendly. They're dark. They're evil. On and on. If we think that we perceive a snake due to this cloudiness we're unable to see clearly, that mistaken perception will inform all our actions, will behave as though we saw a snake. We'll never know the difference. If one, even though filled with fear, kept on going and got closer, or suddenly the moon came up, and you could see that that vine is actually a vine, the whole problem goes away. It's like, oh, no problem, that's a vine. Now, nothing in the situation has actually changed, except that our perception has become accurate. Our relationship to the situation is all that's changed. Recognizing it wrong affects everything. It affects our entire relationship to the experience. (laughs) Just a addendum, it works the other way. When I was in Thailand, uh, staying in one forest lot where there were a lot of poisonous snakes, but one would be on the lookout for them. And I was walking in the woods one day and there's this big green vine. I didn't pay any attention. It walked up close and it actually, it was a snake. So it works both ways. So this is what we're doing all the time in our perception of our mind and body, of who we are. We're continually mistaking it to be something it isn't. This is basic wrong view. It's like we take the input that we get on a moment-to-moment basis of who we are, what we are, and we organize it in a way that's not correct. And then we act on that incorrect perception and build our life on it. So this changing mind-body process, constantly arising sensations, images, sounds, thoughts. It's always in transitional stage, never in a stasis, always becoming. We somehow reorganize it and perceive it as solid, unchanging, permanent, separate from everything else, autonomous, you know, I can do whatever I want. Nothing affects me and I affect no one else. Now, while some misperceptions are easier to see through, you get close to the rope and you can see it's not a snake. This one is how we've always viewed the world. And it's not so easy to see through. And it's also being recreated, this misperception, on a moment-to-moment level. So just seeing through it once we need to keep, isn't enough. We see through it deeper and deeper and deeper on more and more um, powerful levels. But since this is how we've organized the world, it is very hard to see through. So take an example of a time when you've misperceived something, say misperceiving the rope as a snake. Reflect on how real that misperception was 
I mean, that is really, the mind was convinced that's the way things are. Two other examples. One, and you can probably think of times in your own life. One from, uh, I used to read James Thurber a lot when I was a kid. And he had this one whole essay. I I can't remember most of the details. He was almost blind, and it was about how he broke his glasses once and didn't have glasses for three days. And all the wonderful things he was seeing in the world because he couldn't perceive accurately. The one I remember is he would look out of his apartment in New York up on the fifth floor or the tenth floor or something, and this magnificent dog just kept lying on the ledge on the same side of the apartment next door and he'd keep wondering, what's it doing out on the ledge on the tenth floor? It was so magnificent and it just held its pose. It was very regal. And after three days when he got his glasses, he found out it was made out of stone. Now, for those three days, that dog was absolutely a real living dog in his mind. Another one is uh, a friend of mine I heard from. He was walking in England with his wife at twilight. Good time for misperception. The twilight's like the ignorance in our mind. And he saw it out in the country at the far end of a field by some bushes. He saw a whole flock of big white geese walking across the field. So they were kind of big and their necks were kind of twisted funny. But he said, look at those funny white geese walking across the field. And she said, those aren't geese, those are cows. (laughs) And he went on to explain how they're the kind of cows that, I don't remember what kind, but they're black on either end and they're white in the middle. And it was dark and they were up against against some dark bushes. And so all he saw was the white and it formed into something that was geese in his mind. And they were geese, absolutely geese. And then you know how once you see it as cows, they can never really be geese again. You know, they're cows. So we do that a lot. So when you notice that happening, reflect on it. Notice how the process of misperception happens. It's not that different from how we take this thing to be solid and permanent. And reflect on how real Everything was when we were in the misperception. Because it's that same way. It's that real that we think we're this separate, solid, eternal being. Another thing that makes it hard to see through is that often we tend to reject or deny input that's coming in that doesn't fit with our mistaken perception. You know, we've we've kind of gotten so used to that perception that we just block out or deny or don't trust our perception when we perceive something else. A simple example of often people have said in interviews that uh, objects are coming and I just can't stay with one object very long. I just don't have enough mindfulness. My mind's just too scattered. I just can't stay with objects. And often it's because, yeah, you can't stay with objects long because the objects are changing constantly. It's like the absolute bare experience of impermanence. Nothing is staying long, neither the object, nor the attention, nor the mindfulness, nor the consciousness. It's all changing moment to moment. But we actually deny that experience by making a permanent I, can't stay with the object, there's something wrong with me. Instead of opening to the fact that it's all constantly coming and going. 
And we do that a lot. Important in these moments, just notice when you tend to reject a certain experience or perception and see where that where is that rejection coming from. Important to let in these experiences. Or often if it's some kind of a psychic experience or some sense of interconnectedness, we put it down as you know weird or far out or kind of a fringe thing. As if again thinking that we're really separate, that we're autonomous. Important to take in notice the times that this perception is belied, that you see the other way. This, when I was sitting this summer here, um, one really hot summer afternoon, I was doing my walking meditation and did it in the hall of the Catskills. And it was one of these days, it was a, you know, just before a huge thunderstorm, where it's incredibly hot and sultry. You feel like you're walking through a swamp, just walking. It was all I could do just to move. There's this sense of heaviness and something impending. Absolute stillness. Usually people were walking at some, some way, walking up and down the hall, coming to their rooms or passing through, very mindfully, but there was always some activity. During this period of about 20 minutes, absolutely nothing. It was like the whole world was dead still. It was all I could do to just keep myself walking. I felt like I was moving against the energy. And suddenly the thunderstorm just hit, a wild storm. Within 10 seconds, it was pouring rain. It was thundering. Within a minute, people were tearing through the hole. Doors were slamming. People that I hadn't seen move faster than a snail's pace for three weeks were running at top speed down the hall, throwing open doors, checking the windows. I myself was filled with energy and having to hold myself back. I thought, wow, it's not like... There's a thunderstorm and there's me and it's two separate things happening. It was so clearly one happening experience and not a sense of separation or inner or outer or different people. or There's nature happens to have an effect on me. It was so clear that I was nature. So was everyone else. We were all part of the same process. it It was a very powerful moment for me. And just all kind of died down back to normal. It's just Carol lifting, moving, placing, separate from this other person who's walking in my way. So the more that we see these things, the more that we notice, pay attention to, come to understand the nature of ignorance, the nature of these afflictions, know when they're present and when they're not, the less we identify with them, the less we move out of a space of confused perception. And then the clouds, they they really do begin to thin out. It really does happen. And what's so beautiful is, in a way, nothing really changes. And we're always afraid we'll lose something, you know. But it's like when you see that the geese are cows, nothing's any different. The cows are always cows, and they're still cows. The only thing that's lost is a mistaken image of what was happening. Nothing changes, but everything changes, because there's a really crucial difference. 
the way we perceive ourselves is separate, autonomous, unchanging. It feels secure, but actually, it's really painful. When we're coming from perceiving ourselves and then relating to life in this way, it makes everyone else, everything else separate. Things become so difficult, so unsatisfying. You know, it, there's conflict, it hurts. Life is hard. When we're seeing without that, when we're seeing the changing nature and there's nowhere to take a hold and there's no solid core, it's like a huge burden has been lifted off. And things, things are just how they are. It's really so simple. It's just how they always were. And life can even be enjoyable. Thich Nhat Hanh says that um, practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. That doesn't mean every moment you're sitting here you should enjoy. It's sorry to say. But it's the relationship to life can actually become one of deep appreciation and joy rather than this niggling, ongoing conflict pounding the square peg into the round hole. And so when we're seeing without these misperceptions, even the difficult times, they're okay. I want to end with this little quotation from the Tao Te Ching. Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you, and when death comes, you are ready. So we're learning to deal with whatever life brings us. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.